VOA, the science edition of Press Conference USA. Here's your host, Rick Pantaleo. Ever since our ancient ancestors gazed into the night skies to look at the stars, planets, and other celestial objects, humans have long wondered if we're alone in the cosmos. Considering the trillions of galaxies, stars, planets, moons, and other objects that exist in the known universe, many say that surely there must be others out there that are just like us or who are perhaps living in much more advanced civilizations. Hello, I am Rick Pantaleo, your host for this science edition of Press Conference USA. Today, we're going to talk about the ongoing search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which is also called ETI. My special guest for today's program is Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute in Pasadena, California. The SETI Institute, which began as a brief NASA project, is one of the world's leading organizations in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Dr. Seth Shostak joins me today by Skype. Seth, people have wondered for millennia if we're alone in the universe. When did this mere wonderment actually turn into a real search for extraterrestrial intelligence? Well, you know, depending on you, how you view history, I think you could say that even in the 18th century, there were people who thought, or even make it the 17th century, why hold back? When the first telescopes were turned on the heavens by Galileo and and uh, some of his buddies, like Kepler, they saw, for example, craters on the moon. Nobody had really seen those before the telescope. And, you know, they didn't know what they were. And many of them thought that these were cities, underground cities, and the craters were some sort of dome. So I guess you could call that a search for extraterrestrial intelligence. For a long time, people thought the moon might be populated. But the really big step forward happened at the end of the 19th century, when uh, this guy, Percival Lowell, in, in Arizona, used his telescopes to look at Mars and thought he saw canals. Canals. Well, there were canals on Mars. There were intelligent beings on Mars. So that was the beginning of what is now a much more sophisticated search for extraterrestrial intelligence. You mentioned the end of the 19th century, and I can't help but think of the experiments uh, Nikolai Tesla was conducting, hoping to communicate. He said he communicated with Mars. He did. He did. He had this big tower in, I guess it was Colorado Springs. It was in Colorado. And, you know, he had a scheme that he thought could bring power into people's homes without using wires, just sort of broadcast the power. But it didn't work. That was a problem. But it was a big thing. It had a lot of wire. So it, you know, it was, as it turns out, a big antenna in a way. And he did hear something that he thought was broadcast from Mars. Now, most likely, it was what are called whistlers, and those are just an atmospheric phenomenon, lightning sort of reverberating in our atmosphere. But he thought he had heard the Martians. And by the way, he wasn't the only one to think that they had heard Mars. I mean, it was a rather common claim. Can you help us understand the difference between science's search for signs of extraterrestrial life and extraterrestrial intelligent life? Are the two investigations well, linked? Well, they're linked, but they're not the same. What we witnessed, the landing of the Perseverance rover, eventually what that rover is going to do is grab some samples, find some samples of the Martian surface there, you know, rock there on the surface that might have the remains of dead Martians. Those samples will eventually be brought back to Earth to be analyzed here. Those samples 
would be of dead Martians, but dead microbial Martians, bacteria, if you will. So that's the search for life. And by the way, Mars is not the only place nearby that might have dead microbes or even live microbes. Three of the moons of Jupiter, two of the moons of Saturn. These are all places where there might be life. But none of that life is going to hold your attention, hold up its side of the conversation because it won't be intelligent. If you want to find intelligent life, you have to look much farther afield using big antennas like Jodie Foster did in the movie Contact. And, and we do some of that. So the methods are different. But the idea is, even if they're intelligent beings out there, they presumably got started as microbes. So we're talking about intelligence and extraterrestrial life. How is that defined? What is it that SETI is looking for? Well, our definition of intelligence is very simple. If you can build a radio transmitter, then you're intelligent. So I ask my neighbors routinely, hey, can you build a radio transmitter? And most of them say no. But I, I, I still treat them as if they are intelligent. But it just means that they have enough smarts to be able to understand physics, to do engineering, to build big transmitters that could generate signals that we can pick up so that we know they're there. That's it. When we're talking about search for extraterrestrial intelligence, you can't help but mention Dr. Frank Drake and the Drake Equation. Can you tell us a little bit about the man and the equation? Yes, absolutely. Frank Drake, who, by the way, in my opinion, is one of the world's last nice guys. He's just a wonderful guy. <laughs> but in 1960, he had just graduated with his Ph.D. from Harvard, I believe, and he took a job at a radio observatory in West Virginia, and they had just gotten a new antenna. So he was trying to think of something to use it for. I mean, there are a lot of astronomy questions he could use it for, but he thought it would be kind of interesting to actually try and use it to eavesdrop on alien signals. So he promised not to spend a lot of money on this project, and the director of the observatory said, yeah, give it a shot. So he spent about a couple of weeks, actually, pointing this antenna in the direction of some nearby stars, hoping that one or the other of them would have a planet with some aliens who were broadcasting our way. And that was the first modern SETI search. Now, he didn't find anything. I mean, he picked up signals, but they were due to the Air Force and not the Martians or anybody else. But... That's the way we've been doing it ever since, trying to eavesdrop on the aliens. Can you tell us a bit about the Drake equation itself? Because I understand it's basically defining the number of intelligent alien civilizations that exist in the universe. Yes, indeed. And it came about this way. Frank did this experiment, as we just described. That was in 1960. And it generated a lot of interest. There were big articles in Collier's Magazine, which was one of the more popular magazines at the time. And so... He was encouraged to have a meeting to discuss this whole idea that you might be able to find the aliens with a big antenna. And so the next year, 1961, he scheduled a meeting. There were about 12 or 13 people in attendance. These are all very smart people, physicists, astronomers, whatever. And Frank was thinking, well, I'm going to have this meeting next week. I need an agenda. So he came up with this equation, which is now known as the Drake equation, in which he tried to estimate, well, how many societies are out there right now that are broadcasting signals we might pick up right now, okay? And it just depends on, well, how many stars are out there and what fraction of those stars have planets and what fraction of those planets are the kind where E.T. might want to live and that sort of stuff. So that became known as the Drake equation. And by the way, it's often said to be the second most famous equation in all of science after E equals MC squared from Einstein. I understand that the early searches concentrated on a region of the radio section of the electromagnetic spectrum known as 
the water hole. What is the water hole and why is it important in searching for ETI? Well, this was a suggestion that was made right at the beginning. Even in 1960, Frank was listening. He was tuning, if you will, his receiver to a frequency that is in the water hole. It turns out that nature actually makes a lot of natural radio static. It wouldn't be terribly interesting to listen to, but things like quasars and pulsars and Jupiter and the sun, they all make radio noise. It would sound like you're just turning on your kitchen faucet and listening to that for a while. I think you'd get tired of it after a bit. But anyhow, so it makes all these noises. But there are some frequencies where nature makes more noise. And one of them is at the frequency uh, produced by natural hydrogen, ordinary hydrogen, which fills most of the universe, by the mm -hmm. way. It's hydrogen everywhere. And OH, which is the hydroxyl radical, so oxygen and hydrogen. And that's at a somewhat higher frequency. These two frequencies, they're like the old Connellrad frequencies, if anybody remembers those, that used to be on the dials of everybody's home radio, right? These frequencies are where you listen in case of nuclear attack. And these are frequencies that all the aliens will know about because they're defined by nature. So the thought was, if the aliens are trying to get in touch, these two frequencies will tell us where on the dial we should tune. Can you give us a little bit of insight into how the SETI searches are conducted? I know you scan the radio frequencies. How is this done? Actually, it's done very similarly to what Frank Drake did in 1960, except that the equipment, of course, is far, far better. But, you know, the basic idea is the same. You point your antennas, and the bigger the antenna, the better. Bigger really is better, because if it's bigger, it can pick up fainter signals. And, you know, the aliens are going to be far away, so being able to pick up something faint is a good deal. So you point them in the direction of these nearby star systems, and you just listen to as much of the radio dial as you can, looking for signals that are what are called narrow band. Now, that's a technical term, but it just means that the signal is at one spot on the radio dial, not all over the dial, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody tunes in their favorite radio station, well, it's at 740 kilohertz or 1500 kilohertz, whatever it is. It's at some spot on the dial. So if you find a signal like that, and you say, well, I don't know what it is, but it's made by a transmitter, and so that's what we essentially do. And I'm sure over the course of the years, as technology increased, you started using technology like computers to help you analyze the signals? Yeah, well, absolutely. The whole thing is done with computers. In fact, the search, and people will occasionally ask me at, at parties, they will occasionally ask, well, how would you be able to tell that it's an alien signal? Are you listening for them to send us their top 40? Are they sending us the value of pi or, you know, some mathematical series? Again, we're just looking for narrowband signals. But the whole thing is done with computers. And the faster the computer you have, the more of the radio dial you can scrutinize for signals. So the experiment keeps getting faster and faster. When people ask me at those parties, don't you get bored doing the same thing year after year after year? No, because the experiment keeps getting better. And that's because of computers. And I uh, want to look at a couple of milestones in SETI, and, and I'm thinking about the iconic Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. It was a radio telescope that was destroyed when it recently collapsed, and I understand the radio telescope played a role in SETI research. How so? And tell me, what is this Arecibo message I've been hearing about? Yes, well, then the message is I've collapsed. Well, in fact, the Arecibo telescope was the biggest telescope, radio telescope, in the world for a very long time. It was built in the early 1960s, and it's it was a 1,000 feet across. 
It was a <laughs> huge antenna. disc, yes. Oh, it's huge. And, it, you know, I mean, if you've ever been down there and taken a look at it, I reckon it could hold two billion scoops of ice cream. That antenna was the biggest in the world up until a couple of years ago. The Chinese have built something even bigger. But because it was so big, it was very sensitive. It was sort of like a bucket for radio waves, and a bigger bucket collects more radio waves. So that was the idea. Unfortunately, something has gone wrong. Those cables corroded, and the whole thing began to collapse last summer. And now it's completely collapsed, and the question is, will they be able to build it again, or are they going to give up on it? What about the Arecibo message? What was that exactly? Ah, the Arecibo message. Yeah, that was sent in 1977 or 74. Anyhow, in the 1970s, they had just made an improvement to the Arecibo telescope, and they wanted to have a little ceremony, a little party, if you will. And Frank Drake was, in fact, the director of the observatory at that time. And he said, well, as part of the celebration, I mean, in addition to the hors d'oeuvres and the drinks, we should send a message out into space because Arecibo also had a transmitter. Most radio telescopes don't, but the Arecibo telescope did, a very powerful transmitter. So they, for 10 minutes, they aimed the antenna in the direction of a big cluster of stars, and they sent this, uh, essentially, it's a picture. You know, if you saw it, it would look like a, I don't know, a crossword puzzles with white and black squares, except the white and black squares made pictures, sort of what we look like and what DNA is made of and things like that. So that is the Arecibo message. Now, mind you, uh, we haven't gotten any reply, but on the other hand, these stars are very far away, so you shouldn't expect a reply for about another 25,000 years. A related phenomenon was something called the wow signal. Yeah, the wow signal, maybe one of the most famous signals ever picked up by a SETI experiment, but that's, I think, largely because it has such a nifty name. There was a big antenna actually near Columbus, Ohio, run by Ohio State University as a radio telescope, but then it became sort of out of date for radio astronomy. So they just had it scan the sky, you know, continuously, 24-7, trying to find signals from ET. And, you know, every day or two, one of the astronomers would come into the little shack where they had the equipment, and he would rip the printout off the line printer. Back in those days, computers put their output in the form of paper, printed paper. And one day he came in, and there was a signal on it, and it was so impressive. It looked just like what they were hoping to find, that he wrote wow next to it. So that became the wow signal. Was it ET? Probably not, but we don't know what it was because it was never, ever seen again. Let's take a break now. You're listening to the Science Edition of Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. I'm Rick Pantaleo. Here's a reminder that Press Conference USA is available for free download from our website, voanews.com slash PCUSA, and from many streaming services such as Apple Podcasts. We also hope you'll check out our Facebook and Twitter pages at Carol Castiel VOA for alerts and program updates. So now let's get back to the science edition of Press Conference USA. Today, we're talking about the ongoing search for extraterrestrial intelligence with Seth Shostak, the senior astronomer at the SETI Institute in Pasadena, California. Seth, before the break, we were talking about the Arecibo message that was transmitted into space with hopes it could reach members of an extraterrestrial intelligent civilization. The late Stephen Hawking expressed concern that perhaps we shouldn't draw attention to ourselves because such an advanced alien civilization may not be the friendly E.T. type, but malevolent and not have any problem wiping out the human race the way a human might wipe out a colony of ants. 
With this in mind, should we be sending out messages that identify us and where we live? Well, you know, it's really hard to kind of guess what the aliens would find interesting to do, Rick. I mean, who knows? But so what you know, Hawking was saying is, since you don't know what their interests are, are you willing to take the chance by transmitting and letting anybody who's listening know that we're here? And maybe, you know, the aliens will say, hey, wait, the radio signal's coming from that world over there next to the yellow star, and they might uh, compete with us in the used car market or who knows what, and so we better wipe them out now. I mean, that's a possibility. doesn't strike me as very likely, but there's not much you can do about it because we're broadcasting into space all the time. I don't mean SETI, but the local airport has radars. The military, of course, has radars. But there's also FM radio Mm -hmm. and television. All these signals go out into space. And if you're going to be paranoid about it and say, we better not do this, you have to shut all that down. And personally, I don't want to land in an airport at night when it's raining when the radar doesn't work. So I'm against it. Seth, a fairly new astronomical phenomenon has stirred up a lot of attention. They're called fast radio bursts. And lately, astronomers have been detecting repeating radio bursts that are transmitted on a regular cycle. Can you tell us about fast radio bursts and especially the repeating ones? And do you think they may be associated with ETIs? Well, there's at least one astronomer who has suggested that, uh, Abby Loeb, who was for many years the uh, chair of the astronomy department at Harvard University, has certainly suggested that that might be true. Others have as well. Fast radio bursts were actually found in somebody's office at their desk guy's name was Duncan Lorimar, and he works at West Virginia University. And he was looking at some data that had been taken with a radio telescope in Australia mm-hmm. years earlier. And he found that occasionally there would just be this quick burst of radio noise, ew, like that. But so fast, like in an eye blink, you would hear this thing. And nobody knew what it was at first, and a lot of people didn't even think it was real. And that particular radio telescope had a microwave oven in the observing room. I I happened to know it because I used it to heat up my lunches when I was there. But, you know, so was it just that or was it real and so forth? It eventually became real. Some of these things, I mean, there are dozens and dozens of these things known now, fast radio bursts, mostly found in Canada using an antenna up there. But some of them repeat. Right, You get a fast radio burst, whoop, like that, and then maybe two days later you hear it again, whoop. And if they repeat, that's a big deal for an astronomer because now you can use specialized antennas, special telescopes, and look in the direction and just wait for it to repeat. And now you'll be able to get much better data and learn how far away it is and where it's coming from. These things come from very, very far away, Rick. I mean, in some cases, billions of light years away. Maybe they're aliens, but if they're aliens... (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't make much sense. Why, you know, a radio program that only lasts a tenth of a second isn't going to be very interesting, right? It just isn't. And besides that, how can you arrange that the aliens over their three billion light years are going to be coordinating with the aliens back behind me three billion light years so that they're all doing the same thing? I don't think it makes any sense to assume that it's aliens. But it is undoubtedly something interesting. I've heard some scientists talking about looking for and transmitting flashes of laser beams as a communications tool. Can you tell us about this and any active initiatives for laser SETI? Yeah, laser SETI is a thing. And I think it's going to become a bigger thing because so little of it has been done. We finally now have some technology that would allow us to look at big swaths of the sky 
for fast laser bursts. I mean, that's another way that they could get in touch. Maybe they don't know if there's anybody home here on Earth, some aliens. But maybe once every week or every two weeks or every two years, they just flash a laser at us, you know, just like a laser pointer. But they flash it in our direction for, I don't know, a millionth of a second, say. If that is happening, if you will go out in the night sky, look up, you're not going to see that because something that only lasts a millionth of a second once, you're just not going to probably won't even tell your spouse because you figure out oh, something with my eyes, whatever. So this could be happening all the time. But finally, we have the technology to look for these laser flashes. And frankly, lasers would be a great way to send a lot of information because you can get a lot more uh, information on a light beam than you can on a radio beam. So, yeah, maybe they're doing it. And technology is allowing us to look. You know that science fiction and science fact often collide and sometimes gets a little bit confused. There's been a couple of occurrences over the past couple of years that have raised some attention. Back in 2015, I remember there was a lot of online excitement about KIC 8462852 or Tabby Star. And observers here on Earth noticed some odd changes in the star's brightness, which seeded a number of online theories, including that it was actually a big megastructure created by an advanced alien civilization. Can you tell us about Tabby Star and how those incredible theories took root? Yeah, well, <laughs> I wish it were an alien construction. I'd probably get a raise from the boss. But in fact, this was a star that was being observed as part of the Kepler mission. This was a NASA mission. But in any case, this star would occasionally drop in brightness by 20%. Now, if you go out and look at the sun every day, I don't recommend you do that. But if you were to do that, you would find that the sun is always pretty much the same brightness. It varies by maybe one part in a thousand at most, never 20%, never, never. So what was causing this? And it was suggested by a fellow at the Penn State University. Well, he said, look, you know, it could be, as you say, a giant alien construction, something called maybe a Dyson sphere or something. Something that the aliens have built that's so big that it occasionally blocks light from their star. That would be important, if true. But more recent observations of Tabby's star show that it has the kind of colors that would be caused by a star's light being blocked by dust, ordinary dust. There are, there's a lot of dust in the universe. It's a dusty place. And so probably that's what it is and not aliens at all, which is a little disappointing. And it sounds a little bit about the situation with Betelgeuse, that the brightness of the star dimmed a bit last year and then got bright and then dimmed again. It turned out that the results were of dust around the star itself. Yeah, there's a lot of dust in the universe. And, you know, you can say, well, I mean, that's going to provide, you know, something to do when you get into space, <laughs> clear out all the dust. But in fact, it does mean that we can be fooled into thinking that we're seeing some engineering project of, of the aliens, when in fact what we're seeing is something very natural. Speaking of another odd sighting, such as what we just mentioned with Tabby Star, a year or so ago, our solar system was visited by what has been called an interstellar object. Now, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, so please, <laughs> Oumuamua? Yeah, Oumuamua. You had mentioned Dr. Loeb a few minutes ago, and he has a new book out that has some interesting theories about Oumuamua. Yes, he does. And uh, what he's saying is that Oumuamua, yeah, everybody thinks it's an asteroid, a completely natural thing that came into our solar system from somebody else's solar system. Now, that part of the story, nobody disagrees with. It clearly came from somebody else's solar system. That's just physics due to Isaac Newton. We know that's true. But the question is, what is it? And a lot of people have seen this artist's impression that 
makes the Mua Mua look like a bumpy cigar or something, an mm-hmm. elongated thing. But that's just an artist's impression. You know, you couldn't see much more than one pixel of this thing because it's far away. It was 100 million miles away, and it isn't very big. If you took this thing and put it in a football stadium, it would more or less fit. So it's not that huge. And what it is, well, 9 out of 10 astronomers think it was indeed an asteroid. But Avi Loeb says, no, he thinks it might have been a remnant or a solar sail from an alien spacecraft. And after all, he's a smart guy. Mm -hmm. So even though he gets a lot of pushback on this idea, you know, you can't say he's absolutely wrong. Thanks to ground-based and space telescopes, especially NASA's Kepler, and now test missions found thousands of extrasolar planets or exoplanets beyond our own solar system. And some of the confirmed planets include those described as Earth-like, were found in their host star's Goldilocks or habitable zone. Tell us, what's a Goldilocks zone and why might that be important in the search for alien life and possibly extraterrestrial intelligence? The Goldilocks Zone. It sounds like the place you ought to go if you're going to order soup. But in (laughs) fact, the Goldilocks Zone was just that distance from some star, whatever star you're talking about, at which the planet will be neither so cold that any water on it is totally frozen all the time or so hot that any water on it is boiled off, Mm -hmm. right? So that's the habitable zone. It's essentially defined by when water boils and freezes. Now, obviously, we live in a habitable zone because, you know, you can take a pail of water and put it outside, and in the winter it may freeze, and in the summer, well, it won't boil, but it'll evaporate quickly. So we're in the habitable zone. But random planets might not be, and those are the best places to look for life because life probably requires water or something like it. Have SETI investigators been focusing on some of these exoplanets that are in a habitable zone? You know, I mean, what can you do about them? Essentially, every other star, or maybe one star in three, if you're kind of a pessimistic kind of person, will have a planet about the same size as the Earth in their habitable zone. That's a recent research result. That's very encouraging. Look up at the sky. You see a lot of, you might see a couple hundred, a couple thousand stars, and think that one out of two or one out of three of the stars up there might have a planet that's a cousin of the Earth. So it's very encouraging in terms of being able to say that it's likely we have a lot of cosmic company. Recently, I was reading on your website that a colleague of yours at SETI Institute and a scientist from NASA Goddard Space Flight Center recently identified a unique star system called TYC 7037891. And I understand it's it's not just a binary or tertiary star system, but a multiple star system. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, (laughs) it turns out that, you know, stars are like kittens. You usually don't get one when you get get a litter of kittens, right? I mean, you might, but mostly you get, you know, three or four. I don't know what the typical litter size is. Well, stars are something like that, too. You don't necessarily get three or four being born together, but you, you get two as often as you get one. In fact, slightly more often. So, you know, most stars have buddies, right? And sometimes you get a triple system and a quadruple system and even larger. And that just speaks to the the circumstances of their birth. Uh, but, but it would be kind of nifty if anybody remembers the original Star Wars when Luke Skywalker, you know, looks up in the sky. He sees two stars, not just one. Mm-hmm. So he has a, a two-star system. Mind you, maybe not a good deal for Luke Skywalker because, you know, being in an orbit around two stars has a lot of downsides that might ruin his whole day. But still, it's it, it's kind of an interesting view. Seth, finally, this question I'm curious to ask you. 
Should signs of extraterrestrial intelligence someday be discovered, how would the SETI community handle the announcement? I'm sure that any public revelation would be protected with high security by governments around the world. Might we never know? Might there already have been discovered some extraterrestrial intelligence, but we don't know about it because they don't want to tell us about it? Well, to begin with, looking for extraterrestrial intelligence is all being done by, you know, private, nonprofit research groups, not by the government. So they don't even have control of that information. But secondly, this idea that we wouldn't be told, the government wouldn't tell us, they'd keep it secret because, because why? Why, why, why wouldn't they tell us? It would be very interesting to say, oh, well, public, the public couldn't handle the news. But you know that's not true. If you, you know, just ask uh, people walking down the street, hey, if the scientists announce tomorrow that they picked up a signal from E.T., would you start rioting in the streets? Would you not go to work? Would you not go to school? What would you do? Mm-hmm. And the answer is they'd say, well, I, I'd want to read more about it. I mean, there's no policy of secrecy. And there's no way to keep it secret anyhow. So if it happens, you'll hear about it. Seth, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And I'm hoping perhaps someday we may find it. I I hope so, too. (laughs) Thanks very much, Rick. That was Seth Shostak, the senior astronomer at the SETI Institute in Pasadena, California. He joined our program today via Skype. This is Rick Pantaleo. Thanks for listening today, and be sure to join Carol Castiel again next week for another edition of Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.